Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine. And I'm Stephen. And today it's a very warm welcome to Dr. Daniel Schricker. Daniel is someone with experience and also has studied the Quasi Zabantu mission. Uh, so in a way, today's podcast is a follow-up to our previous episode where we spoke to Erica Borman about her experiences. So welcome, Daniel, to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Brilliant. So, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, so you've written a few bits about um, the, the group. Um, I, I noticed that quite a lot of people call it KSB, so I'm, I probably will will follow right. that as well. Um, so you've written about it and um, you have some experience. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, please, Daniel, uh, and why you're interested in this subject. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm based in Australia now, but I grew up in Germany, uh, spent the first eight years of my life there. And that was how I was introduced to Krasi Zabantu initially, even though the mission station is based in South Africa. Hmm. They started running conferences in the early 80s, which became an annual thing. And they became relatively popular to the point that they were being attended by thousands of, of people. And eventually... The, the work expanded enough that they could plant churches in, in Europe as well. So my initial introduction to the group was just through these conferences. So we would we would go as a family typically. Right. And then uh, in 96, when I was five years old, we moved to Kwasi Zabantu, South Africa, and lived there for a period of six months or so. My mother worked at the radio station that they had on the mission there, and my sisters attended the school. And I was a little bit too young, so I kind of was just doing my own thing. But um, And then we eventually, as a family, we moved to Australia. Um, and in a rather sort of bizarre twist of coincidence, we discovered that uh, there was actually a branch of Kwasi Zabantu in Australia as well, um, in, in the state that we were thinking of moving to. So the bulk of my time under the, the Kwasi Zabantu franchise shall we say was uh spent in the australian church and i was in that right. for about 10 years or so and uh left uh just before i turned 18 so um what are your sort of memories of of that then um growing up in that within that that sort of that group uh yeah so the the conferences were relatively benign comparatively mm. speaking i mean they didn't have the same organizational structure where they could exercise the kind of control that took place. Having said that, um, one of the most recent developments uh, in terms of the media and, and press releases and things like that is that um, one of the, the schools in, in Europe 
released a report after conducting an investigation and found that there was physical and sexual abuse that took yeah. place uh, within the, mm. the school and the church there as well, or one of them. And um, so, yeah, and uh, sorry, just just remind me, what was the question again? <laughs> Yeah, just thinking about um, a bit about your experience growing up, really, um, within that uh, that organisation or within that influence. You know, anything you can remember about that that time? Right. Yeah. So then, I suppose uh, getting to know the the mission station itself that was a little bit of a culture shock because um, that that was you know quite a different context to, to somebody that had grown up in Europe. So you've got this multiracial mission station where everything operates. Um, a little bit more like a compound. It's much more of an enclosed community. Hmm. And uh, so, you know, services were a much more regular occurrence. Um, the sorts of rules that were being enforced at the school that my sisters attended, they were much more rigid than anything that was legally allowed in, in Europe. Right. Um, so that, that was sort of uh, the introduction to the, the main uh, founding group, I suppose. And in terms of the experience in Australia, where I spent most of my time, some aspects of it were more mild, so they didn't have the same level of physical abuse taking place uh, with regards to children. Um, it, the, the, the group in Australia essentially consisted of one very large extended family. So the, the pastor was one of 11 children and they all married and had kids and uh, you know there were cousins and things like that. So the, the demographic and the dynamics within that group uh, operated kind of as its own institution, but under the same influence, that the same set of doctrine as Kossi Um Every year we had the the leader's brother come out and do like a, a proper conference, uh, preaching conference, and people would you know, speak to him and get counselling from him and, and things like that. I want to talk about the, the, the little pieces of writing that you've done because I think they're really good and people can access them. Um, our listeners can access them too. So we'll, we'll put some links on there to those, uh, those blogs. Um, what, what was your motivation for uh, not just leaving, but also, I suppose, talking about the, the group in a negative way, I suppose. You're, you're, you're pointing out the issues with the group. What, why did you want to do that? Why did you think that was important? Uh, a number of reasons. So firstly, the, the psychological and theological aspects of the group uh, impacted my life personally in a very negative way. Right. And secondly, um, naturally, I was concerned knowing that there's a vast number of children that are still, I mean, I'm concerned about the adults too, but specifically children for obvious reasons. I mean, they, hmm. you know, they, they lack the critical thinking and the autonomy to be able to do something if there's an issue. And so in a sense, I felt somewhat of a moral obligation to say things that um, I wasn't seeing being said about the group, which I felt needed to be said. And really what gave me the impetus to do it specifically was that in 2020, there was a documentary and a massive sort of media uh, storm that uh, erupted surrounding Kwasi Zabantu. Um, I'm, I'm sure Erica Bornman would have uh, talked about some of those, those things with you guys as well. And so it sort of seemed like this was the right time to do it. You know, there was a lot of press coverage of the mission. There were a lot of people coming forward with their stories, um, a lot being written and said about the mission. And there were, there were things just to do with the experience, particularly of children and to do with the psychological aspects of the belief system, as I said, that I felt needed to be said and uh, just articulate uh, the experience of somebody, particularly growing up in that context. 
and the good thing about all of the articles and the documentary and the podcast was that there was now quite a large number of sources on which to, to draw so that it's not just uh, one disgruntled uh, man sharing his opinion. You know, it's kind of, I wanted it to be more objective than that, I suppose. And so, yeah, eventually I kind of settled on the idea of, of just looking at the aspect of fear within the group, because one, one theme that emerged very clearly was this constant sense of, of a lot of ex-members saying, you know, there was such a culture of fear that was present or, um, you know, the fear specifically relating to children because they were punished so so severely at times. And so I thought that was just a way to kind of unify or, or have a common theme, but also cover a lot of different elements that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, I think that's a really, a really good way of doing it. So you, you cover four areas in, in your... Uh, I, I keep calling it a blog. Is that is that the best way to describe it? How would you describe your piece? Um, I'm not sure what it is actually. I when when I wrote them, I I wasn't even really thinking about how I was going to go about sharing them so much. Okay. Um, and I didn't want to go to the trouble of actually creating an entire website uh, because there there is actually already a website that exists for ex members um, called KSB okay. Alert. And, but no, initially I just figured uh, WordPress is, is free and easy to upload stuff. Maybe I'll just put it there and hope that things get shared on social media. So that's, that's what I ended cool. up Cool. All right. Well, that's, that's why I call it a blog because it's on WordPress. So yeah, we'll <laughs> carry on with that. You're not offended. Um, no. So there's four, four um, separate blogs that you've obviously str- uh, sit together um, that identify four different types of fear. So what were those four that you thought were really important? So uh, the first one is fear of God. Uh, the second one is fear of authority. And, and in that one, I'm, I'm talking also about some of the punishments that applied to, to people that broke the rules. Uh, then there's fear of self. And uh, the last one is fear of the outside world. Um, did it take a while for you to kind of get to a point where you could, um, yeah, where, where you felt ready to write this, not just that it was the right time because of what was happening with the media, but you felt it was the right time for you as well? Uh, That's a good question. I mean, I think it was more that to some extent, um, I left, you know, that part of my life behind me as much as possible. I mean, there's ongoing psychological issues, as I'm sure Mm -hmm. your dad knows as well. Um, but you know, there was no reason to keep sort of mulling over it in, in my mind. You know, I was, I was busy with study and things like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, it was really just the, as I mentioned, the, the media attention that suddenly uh, sort of came out of the blue to me. I was really just on YouTube one day and I saw this, this headline pop up and I thought, whoa, what's, what's happening here? You know? And so of course, naturally I, I started reading and, and watching and, and I guess that got me, you know, thinking about that part of my life in a lot more uh, detail again. And um, yeah, so I think that was that was really the, the starting point for feeling like um, maybe there was something worth contributing to the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so you start with um, with fear of God in your in your piece, um, and you you link this to the the concept of revival. So, a lot of our listeners are people who have belonged to various different groups at some point. Um, I'm an ex Jehovah's Witness. The, the the revival the term revival is just not something that we we would know about it we just didn't use that term um i think we heard it um from the podcasters i was a teenage fundamentalist they they talk about that can you tell us a little bit about uh revival and how that links to the fear of god um 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that the two are by definition related. So within Protestant evangelical history, revival is really the concept of um, God operating in a very unique, special kind of way, often with tangible results. So you might see, you know, um, hundreds of people converted in one night to Christianity or um, people might report some kind of a tangible sense of the presence of God. And in the case of Krasi Zabantu, they believed that uh, in 1966, God had come down and they described that it was like a rushing wind in this particular building that they were in. So it was almost like, uh, I guess, a physical manifestation in, in their minds of God visiting them. And they claimed that as a result of this visitation by God, that they experienced, you know, many, many supernatural healings. Uh, one of the, the women that's at the very top of the leadership of Krasi Zabantu, she claims that she was raised from the dead, for example. So th there was a sense in which, I guess, in the context of Kwasi Zabantu, they, they believed it was this special visitation that resulted in these very supernatural occurrences. And um, I, I personally think it also gave them the impetus from that point onwards to, to subdue any dissenters, really, because to, to question anything about the group or the leadership was therefore to go against God himself because God's visited them in this unique way, you know. Um, it's also really important in explaining their extreme sectarianism and elitism, which characterizes the group, because this was the thing that, that makes them distinct from other Christians. And in, and in fact, is the thing that allows them to define the, the rules of, of how people live their lives there. Um, that would be quite different from pretty much any other, uh, evangelical church or organization that you would join. So yeah, in, in relation to, to Kwasi Zabandu specifically, um, they, they did sometimes use it to justify the culture of fear there. Um, so, for example, there was an occasion where the Evangelical Alliance in South Africa approached them with concerns that they were heading in the direction of a cult. And one of the, mm. the allegations they brought forward was, was that, you know, many ex-members were reporting this culture of fear. And Kwasi Zabandu's response was to say, well, um, this is just a part of revival. So that's that's what we're going with sort of thing. Mm. Uh, that's interesting. I, I think um, what I took from your 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 work on that, your blog on that, was that um, it, along with this with this revival was the fact that that it, it was important to maintain that state of revival. And, right. and a big part of that was that in order to do that, then this idea of confessing sins, every single sin, uh, was absolutely necessary. Uh, otherwise, that that revival would be lost. Um, right. And and that's kind of the next step on from that. Then is is you have to have this whole process around confession, which is actually quite interesting. Um, most Protestant religions, um, that was one of the things that is different to Catholicism, isn't it? So most Protestant religions, you don't need confession because right. it's uh, all about Jesus' ransom sacrifice. And that's the thing that is, is the thing that's going to save you. Um, and they, so they rejected the Catholic notion of confession. Whereas this, this group, um, although Protestant in, in its nature, in some respects, not only does it go back to confession, but it really, it, it does it in such an extreme way. Well, can you tell us a bit about what confession is like in Quasi Zabantu? Yeah, absolutely. And, and 
yeah, you're, you're spot on. So, um, I mean, interestingly, I don't think that the confessional system was in any way derived from the Catholic or Orthodox traditions no. because the, the founder of the group, um, I'm trying to remember what his background was as a family. I think it may have been Methodist or something like that. Um, so, yeah, it was really something... They, they created uh, belief systems that they said came out of the revival, but what that meant was that somebody had had a dream or somebody had had a vision. Uh, somebody felt this was the best way to do things. And one of the, the core tenets, which remains until this day, is, is this idea of confession. So essentially what they teach is they kind of bypass the, the Protestant understanding of justification by faith, where it's faith in Christ and, and the atonement that saves. Mm. They... They've developed this belief system where the way you make it to heaven is you confess all of your sins, but not not directly to God. It has to be in the presence of one of the, the leaders or one of the co-workers there. And generally what that would look like is that meant going back through your entire life and trying to confess all of your sins. And then in an ongoing sense, anytime you sinned, you had to confess again. Now, the really insidious thing about this doctrine from a psychological perspective is that they essentially taught that every time you sinned until you've confessed it you're back under the, the judgment of god so particularly for children there's this mm. constant sense of um not only divine omniscience but but um this, this vindictive figure that is all-knowing all-seeing and of course, you can never really keep up to date in, in terms of you know keeping your life pure enough as it were and so, for example, uh, one thing that they did at the school at Kwasi Zabantu is that they made confession of sin mandatory for the school students um, for at least some of the time that the school existed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, th there's a sense in, in which that, that became the sum of Christianity for them. So to be a good Christian at Kwasi Zabantu was equal to, you know, uh, confessing your sins regularly to one of the leaders. Now, a really interesting thing just on this topic, I think, about cults is the whole use of language. So one of the things that they would do is they would often cloak, cloak the, the, this, this act of confession in much more innocuous terminology. So, for example, if you hear somebody at Kwasi Zabantu saying, we need to walk in the light, what they mean by that is actually we need to keep confessing our sins in front of the, the leaders of the group. Um, or, you know, keep keeping yourself pure, same same kind of idea. So you wouldn't necessarily hear people talk about, you know, confession all the time, but there's there's very um, select terminology that uh, is well with well understood within the group. And um, I, I'm particularly concerned. I, I recently uh, looked in on some of the videos they posted for their youth conference, mm. and they had children that looked about the age of, you know, between six and eight, saying on camera that you know they need to confess their sins to the the adults because if they don't they'll die and spend eternity in hell so mm. you know that's how deeply held this belief is that they indoctrinate their children with it as well which is very concerning to me mm -hmm. yeah you you say um i'm going to quote you from uh, from your own blog but um you you make the point how do i know so a child um you know an eight-year-old child like you just described you can imagine that they're thinking, you know, how do I know I've confessed all my sins? Have I confessed them in enough detail? What if I forget some of my sins? Mm. What if I die with unconfessed sins? 
Um, and the the other thing is the language you mentioned. They they call them counselors, don't they? So again, that's that's a very different way of describing it. But yeah, I can, I can absolutely identify with that feeling of um, fear and not not being sure whether you've you've committed a sin and and, and what that might mean. Um, yeah, that's quite that's really quite disturbing, actually. Yeah. Right, and of course, a child you know has a very limited understanding of what the yeah. concept of sin actually is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, um, I, I've heard multiple stories from from ex members who say that as children they they ended up just you know making up stuff so that they would have something to say in these in these mm. acts of confession, you know, and 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 that's the sort of farce that the whole thing d- descends into. I think at a certain point, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. I suppose as well. There's the issue of con- uh, of the control of not just the fear element but the control of these people now know everything you've ever worried about ever Absolutely. do you know what i mean so right. like if you ever um that's o- over you isn't it you know that there's someone out there that knows everything that you might have kept yourself you know even if um it's not that big of a deal but it matters to you or anything that's normally we all have our secrets but in this situation you don't get to have secrets yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, I, I've heard stories from, from people recently who've said that when they were thinking about leaving Kossi Zabantu, things that they confessed in confidence um, were then held against them and, and essentially, you know, used in a sinister way. So, yeah, I mean, from, from just a psychological and organizational perspective, it gives the leadership a tremendous amount of control because what better way to know exactly what everyone is up to but to threaten them with this this vindictive god you know into confessing as you say all of their their deepest darkest secrets and and sins to the leadership mm-hmm. yeah that's a really good point um so um that uh, they invoke this um the sin of Achan, which I, I found quite interesting um so when i was a, a jehovah's witness we we talk about this in fact i remember a um a drama so as a young Jehovah's Witness, we'd go to football grounds and they'd do like a like a drama, which would they'd be acting out um, these biblical dramas on the football field, um, and we'd all be watching this drama. And I just remember this particular one. So this was um, in the times of the Israelites and Achan. Um, what did he, he? He took some of the uh, the spoils, I think, didn't he? And he kept. He, he That's hid right. It. And hid, hid them. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's this idea that, um, and, and of course that that meant that they they, they lost the next battle, um, and also they needed to understand, you know, what had happened, who'd who'd done this terrible thing, and so yeah, it was it's a very disturbing story actually, um, and I remember as a child being quite disturbed by it. I think in the end he dies and all his family die along with him, um, so it's it's quite um, frightening to a. Uh, to a child to think that that's actually what we're talking about here so it's it's about we must confess because otherwise we're going to end up um in the same state as as Achan uh, and of course uh, um Erica talked about the the film where young children are shown what hell looks like um and that's another thing that that makes uh, makes the the children obviously think that they need to confess because if they die before they confess their sin then that's where they're going well, I actually, just on, on the subject of the films, I actually think that was one of the most reprehensible things that Crosses Upon mm. have done because, um, so that I am sure Erica discussed this a little bit as well. So the, the film was The Burning Hell by a, a fundamentalist uh, Baptist, I think, uh, Estos Pierre. 
But, you know, it included uh, other things too. So even when I was uh, at Kwasi Zabantu in South Africa, I was there for one of the youth conferences. And, um, you know, they were, they were showing the, the Passion of the Christ, which is an incredibly violent movie, and mm. showing it to young children who were there without their, their parents present. It's not appropriate. Um, you know, it was just there was zero concern or even thought about the psychological well-being of, of children. And that was that was really that pervaded the entire Kwasi Zabantu system, which is, I believe, why we've now got, you know, documented instances of child abuse taking place within Kwasi Zabantu Europe as well. Mm, yeah, awful. Oh, um, okay, so the next fear that you talk about is fear of, of authority. So the, um, the 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 group has set up a lot of systems of power and authority, um, and individuals are. are learning so i think we're focusing on on children growing up in the in the group and i, I really think that's really important i'm a i'm a, a big advocate for that because i think all too often the focus on cults is you know how do people get sucked into cults well that's completely irrelevant when you're growing up in right. it. um so yeah so um so they've set up this this power um structure do you want to talk a little bit about what what you think is important about this this the fear of authority yeah, absolutely. So I think um, th- there's there's really two two aspects to it. So firstly, the, the the lives I mean of everyone, but specifically children, were extremely regimented. I mean they they had rules for anything and everything. You know the length of your hair, what you were wearing, who you could speak to. Um, one of the main kind of uh, sacred cows of their doctrine is this idea that people marry each other without having spent any time together or spoken to each other and that that was enforced in the lives of even prepubescent children as well so um you know making sure that you're not fraternizing with the opposite sex and things like that so you know you have to imagine for a child that is immersed in this world of of rules that that actually seem quite arbitrary you know for the most part Hmm. um it, it it just creates this this environment where the individuality, the personality of the child is just completely lost, really. It's completely suppressed. They are made to conform to the system, and that, that is really what the leadership prizes, you know, is this, this idea of conformity. Um, so, and, and of course, the, the, the most uh, sinister aspect of all of these rules is the way that they were enforced by the people in authority. So, um, you know, I, I talk in, in that particular essay about the fact that there was there was systemic uh, beating of children that was absolutely horrifying. This isn't, you know, six of the best or, or um, you know, a, a normal kind of corporal punishment. This, th- these were, you know, abusive, uh, violent beatings of children that, you know, have left permanent physical and psychological scars for many of them. And, um, you know, when, when you're creating a set of rules that has such a punitive kind of uh, system of punishment that it's being enforced through. I mean, that is psychologically devastating for a child. Mm. And bear in mind as well that the authority structures at Kwasi Zabantu, they, in the minds of the children, uh, the way they're presented is that they represent God. So, you know, the, the child is not only afraid of stepping out of line because of the punishment from authority, but they you know, even the ones that uh, perhaps do it out of view or something like that, they, they know that there's still this God that they have to contend with. Um, so there's so many layers to the, the, the 
the hierarchy and the authority structures that were problematic in, in relation to children, that um, I, I really think it, it was just a systemic psychological and physical abuse, um, mm. you know, for, for most of the people that, that grew up in that context. Yeah, you, you quote um, a number of different sources in in your in your piece. Um, uh, I mean, our conversation with Erica last week um, was very enlightening, but also in her book. And you know, I do recommend that people read that that book. Um, she does talk quite detail about some of the experiences she witnessed. Um, but of course, she she's also at pains to say that. As a as a little white girl, she actually had it easy compared to to the uh, the Zulu um, community that were part of it as well. So um, yeah, it, it's it's very disturbing, but I think important to know that's what was happening. Right, and and I mean, I'm I'm in a similar boat as well. I mean, thankfully, I can say I didn't experience any of, of the, the the physical abuse myself, mm. you know. Um, but yeah, I think it's absolutely crucial to, to highlight it. I mean, there, there was a number of, of areas where distinctions were drawn, uh, you know, b- between the, the, the Zulu children and the white children. Um, and the other area, of course, was the virginity testing of, of the young Zulu girls, which was only done to the Zulu girls, you know. So, um, which is kind of an interesting concept too, because one of the, the selling points of Kosizapantu, especially in, in the time of apartheid and things like that was this idea that there's racial integration, there's, there's no discrimination. Um, there's, there's this kind of harmonious multiracial, uh, you know, organization existing within South Africa. So it, it takes a little bit of digging beneath the surface to see that, you know, not all was as it seems. Yeah, that, that's um, that, that's right. Um, I'm just thinking about the responses from from the group. I mean, we as a podcast, we we don't see any need to, you know, fastidiously like the BBC would have right of reply. You know, we we obviously we come at this from a very specific position. They seem to um, blame the parents for these sorts of excesses um, when it comes to things like virginity testing and. Um, abusive punishment um what, what's your response to that that, that they were only doing what basically the community wanted them to do my response to that is that is, is a pathetic and cowardly <laughs> response on their part um <laughs> that it's it's not look they're being they're being uh, devious and they're playing with semantics when they give a response like that the fact is it was sanctioned by the leadership of the mission Yes, it may have been something that was discussed with, with some of the parents. It may have been approved or encouraged by some of the parents. But at the end of the day, when you're an organization that has children in your care and you try, you know, there's been this systemic abuse, which is now well documented, and you try to pass that off and shift responsibility onto the parents, that, that is an outrageously cowardly way to deal with it. They, they need to accept responsibility for the things that they systemically enforced the other problem with that is it sort of makes it sound like they weren't actually in agreement with these practices when in actual fact they were the ones doing it and encouraging it and preaching it so um yeah look i i think that's an incredibly deceptive uh, way to respond on on their part yeah absolutely um there's a there's a quote in in uh, in your blog um from a recent sermon and, and I, it really hit me quite hard actually by uh, one of the uh, the leaders um you have to correct me if, if i'm getting the pronunciation wrong dr albu van eden 
Yeah, I'll be one of them. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I, I mean a, a little bit of what he says here. Um, he says, can I say this to the young people, to the children in our midst? God takes it very seriously when you play what you say and do. Do not think we are just playing. We are just children. God took Ishmael's actions so seriously that he ended up being chased away. He lost his father. For the rest of his life, he lived without a father. What do you children play? What do you talk about? What do you say when you're playing? What do you do? Do you lose your temper? Do you do filthy things? Have you brought that to the light? Have you asked God for forgiveness? So here the leadership is actually getting, it's inserting itself into children's play um, so that they are, I mean, if I was that child, I would be paranoid about what I was doing uh, in, in every walk of life and I would be worrying about that constantly. Um, and add to that the culture of snitching, which you can probably talk a little bit about. Um, I mean, what sort of childhood was that? Well, that, that's the thing. I mean, I, and that's, I guess, what really concerns me is that, you know, you have you have children's lives where really no part of it is left unscathed because between God, the, the authority structures at the mission and, and the very regimented lifestyle that they're, they're asked to live, um, you know what? What kind of a, a childhood is that really for a child? And how do they, how do they process that growing up? And um, you know, just live under that that sense of scrutiny and pressure all of the time. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've seen sermons even since I wrote those blog posts, which were even worse in my opinion in, in terms of being mm. being you know just just threatening children with with hellfire and and things like that for you know. Yeah, uh, and so, um, yeah, it's it's very very concerning, and and one of the reasons why I felt it was important to quote recent sermons from them is that another defense that they seem to like to use is well, yes, some of this has happened, but it was twenty or thirty years ago, and I guess the argument that I'm making is that yes, you may have stopped some of the the systemic physical uh, abuse of children, but your core belief system and what you're teaching children hasn't changed and it's still psychologically damaging. It's this all-encompassing all sort of control, isn't it, um, with, with the childhood and stuff? Does it? I suppose it takes a long time to unravel that and um, become okay with doing things without everyone being aware all the time and um, I guess like the process of becoming your own person is even... It's something we talk about a lot on the podcast. Um, was that something that was like a really strange process, not having to confess things or not having to feel like you're being sort of watched, I suppose? Yeah, um, I think for, for me, because I was uh, in the Australian context most of the time, I didn't I didn't feel quite the, the, the level of threat from the authority structures within the church because we, as I said, we weren't geographically quite as... Um, you know, enclosed in a community. But what, what definitely did impact me was was the theology of God always watching me and God always being sort of waiting to punish for, for things that you're doing wrong. Um, I remember in, in my sort of early to mid-teens, I started looking back, I realized I started developing some obsessive compulsive tendencies like in the sense of scrupulosity, you know, where mm-hmm. um, you're going through these rituals to to you know, lessen the anxiety surrounding either things you've done wrong or, 
you know, just trying to meet some some standard of God's approval so that, you know, the, the judgment that they're always talking about will, you know, maybe be saved off a little bit and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, that was really incredibly destructive just from a theological point of view as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that probably leads quite nicely on to, to your next um, fear, I suppose, the next fear that you talk about, which is fear of self. Um, as Celine said, mm-hmm. we're very interested in this subject on this podcast and we talk about it a lot how does this organization make children um who and then grow up into adults how does that make them fear themselves well yeah that's it's an interesting question and and um something that i've been interested in doing and doing a little bit more recently as well is just collecting stories from from other people who grew up in this context just to get a sense of you know what was it like for you and and how did you navigate that transition from adolescence into young adulthood especially i think is kind of the the crucial point in life um but yeah so in in that particular essay i talk about a number of things so i talk about you know the personality of the child being suppressed because you know they're in this very regimented um worldview and system Uh, i talk about emotional control you know the, the fact that um certain emotions are you know, uh, just attributed to Satan or, you know, you're made to feel evil for, let's say, having a crush on somebody of the opposite sex. Or, you know, there was a young lady that gave a testimony at Crossy's Avantur um, who claimed that she gave herself over to Satan because she was struggling with anger issues. You know, just these these bizarre, uh, you know, emotional responses from, from children and, and young adults. Um, I talk a little bit about sexuality as well in that context, because, and I think that's kind of a, a big one, and I'm sure you can relate to some extent uh, growing up in the Jehovah's Witnesses as well. Just, you know, how, how does a child and an adolescent come to a healthy understanding of their, their sexuality when there is such a paranoia surrounding it? I mean, Kwasi's uh, as I said, you know, they segregated the genders right up until the, me- the wedding ceremony. So even if you were engaged, you weren't allowed to speak or, uh, you know, uh, associate with your fiance even. Mm. And uh, so just a really unhealthy understanding of, of sexuality. Um, so, yeah, those those are some of the things that I discuss in that particular essay. Yeah, I think that's really, it's really important. Um, so for me, there's a few things that, that stood out. Um, I think one is this being afraid of your own mind um, is, is very uh yeah it's it's that's very dangerous so if if you're worried about your own thoughts if you're afraid of your own mind um impulses like being attracted to somebody um these are things that happen without conscious thought uh much of the time and and so you become afraid of your uh, of your normal responses to things um that's yeah, that that's got to be psychologically very, very damaging, or potentially damaging, anyway. Um, I think the other thing I think is worth mentioning, Daniel, is um, the different that the fact that individual differences will have also an impact on the way that people experience this. So, um, and this is something that we talk about um, for myself as an ex Jehovah's Witness. You know, I talk about some of my experiences. But I also know that there, there may well be others who grew up in very similar situations who perhaps didn't feel the same way, you know, and that's because we, we respond to our environment in our own way because of our own differences, individually, individual differences. Um, 
So for some children, that experience is incredibly damaging. For others who maybe um, it didn't hit them so hard, they might look back and think, well, it, you know, it was bad, but it wasn't that bad. We cannot, um, we, we can't reduce the impacts that it has on those children for whom that was an incredibly damaging experience. So that's something I'm quite passionate about. Yeah, and, and that's actually an interesting topic that I've been thinking a great deal about too, because in the process of speaking out, there there is a sense of second guessing yourself and, and, and thinking, well, you know, were there aspects of my personality that made me particularly, or, or my psyche that made me particularly susceptible to, to certain things, you know? And um, I, I think the, the thing that encouraged me though was you know, the sense of solidarity that comes from reading the stories of other survivors and ex-members and realizing, whoa, that sounds really similar to what I've been struggling with or thinking about, um, things things like that. So, um, and, and I think once once you have enough evidence to suggest that this, this happened at a systemic level where you know either a significant number or even the vast majority of, of people growing up in the system were, were damaged significantly then i think it really uh, the onus really is on the organization to take responsibility and to you know try and yeah. do something to address that absolutely yeah absolutely uh, yeah it's something that apologists for these sorts of groups will often say they will point to people who are apparently quite well adjusted and don't seem to have the same problems and say well you know if it you know if this is if brainwashing is a thing well how how come this you know um, mm-hmm. and that's completely ignoring the fact that people will receive and will experience the same things differently um, but you, you can't simply um, make your judgment based on the the people that that seem to have adjusted to things that actually they shouldn't needed to have adjusted to. I just wanted to add on to that because, as I said, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about that. One one thing, and, and you could probably provide a lot more insight just with your background, it seems to me that particularly children that are the most susceptible in these types of groups are the ones that have some kind of secondary trauma happening in, in either their domestic life or in some other part of their life as well. Um, so I've, I've talked to a lot of people and oftentimes... Um, you know, the, the members of Kwasi Zabantu who've now left, who were most impacted by the teaching and, and the, the culture of fear and things like that, were children that had some other trauma, you know, whether it was within the home with parents or, um, you know, uh, of course, sexual or, or physical abuse taking place that outside of the context of the mission and, and things like that. Um, yeah, it seems to affect them, I mean, for obvious reasons, uh, much more than, than, say, somebody that essentially had a stable home but was within this environment. You know? Yeah, it, it's. Um, I'm sure you're right, and that, that's probably where more work needs to be done um, in terms of trying to pick apart the factors um, of of how it affects individuals. Um, I know there is some quantitative work being done on religious trauma. We spoke to... Um, uh, Darren Slade um, on, on our podcast fairly recently whose who's organisation is doing some of that and I think there's others that are doing some of that too and maybe that's going to give us some more insight into the the factors that, that will go together to create certain um, effects in people. Right. I mean we know this from all sorts of situations that you know individuals will have certain responses 
um, to situations that mean that they it, it has more of an impact on them. And people don't realise how much of a difference that makes. I mean, I, I, I personally, as my nature as a child, was a very sensitive, worrying child. And I would have always been that sensitive, worrying child. Um, whereas another child may not be like that just by their very nature. Um, of course, then the things you experience and hear are going to affect you in a slightly different way. Um, but I think that's a, it's right. a fascinating subject, um, and I'm sure you're right that um, mm. yeah, secondary issues as well do uh, are bound to have another part to play. Um, you know, uh, in that sort of intersection between your experience. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I guess we we need to move on um, to the fourth one because we, we we I want to make sure we we get all four of those in. So the the other the, the other fear that you talk about is fear of the outside world, and again. Uh, I think ex-Jehovah's Witnesses and other members of high control groups will recognize that. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so in the the fourth essay that I've written, uh, Fear of the Outside World, um, I talk about uh, two main things. Uh, the first one is that Kwasiza Bantu instills in children this idea that growing up in the revival, and by that they mean Kwasiza Bantu, is is this kind of utopia this this haven within the world where you know god is present in a special way um the, the rules and everything are there to keep them safe and you know naturally the consequences of, of, of that is that they they demonize the outside world so you know there's there's many innocent things which would be um uh shown as wrong to, to children so for example you know dating you know romantic relationships um things like movie you know particularly certain kinds of movies uh music you know cultural aspects are all kind of imbued with this sense of um darkness or you know the, the the devil is involved with these things you know we can't let ourselves be corrupted by that and so you know the the result of that is that children in particular although i think this applies to adults as well are incredibly fearful of, of the world that they don't know, you know, they're, they're largely sheltered from it. And so that makes it tremendously difficult for people to leave as well, because, you know, as human beings stepping into something that's unknown, completely unfamiliar to us, we're probably always going to default to staying in what's familiar unless something, you know, big kind of prompts us to, to take that step. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Fear of demons is a, is a big thing. Um, the, obviously, demons are the... So again, this is something that um, my fellow ex-JWs will recognise, the idea that the world is under the control of Satan and his demons, and therefore everything that is um, from the world is is essentially demonic. You know, um, there's, there's some allowances. You know, people can go and go to music concerts and watch movies but there's always that worry that oh you know is this demonic is this um you know is is this wrong what i'm doing here so yeah i think um i think we'll, a lot of us will recognize this fear of demons and fear of communism was something also that you that you mentioned right i mean that that's sort of an interesting one too i i personally didn't really experience that um mm. at quasi just because the, the times i was there i don't remember it being emphasized but um, I know people like Erica and others um, can certainly attest to the emphasis on that. I mean, that's an interesting one because that was a kind of cultural paranoia that obviously, you know, during the, the McCarthy era, you've got it going on in America as a, as a cultural yeah. phenomenon. 
in, in Europe, there was certainly this paranoia amongst uh, certain religious people of, um, you know, communist ideology as, as being kind of the, the antithesis and, and the, the antichrist of ideologies, shall we say. Um, I, I suppose, again, my, my main objection to that really in terms of the essay is to say that why, why are you engaging children in this kind of ideological warfare? Um, that just seems absurd to me because, again, it, it creates this, this idea in the child's mind that, you know, the world is essentially an unsafe place unless I'm being protected by this this particular group, you know, in this case, Basit Labanku. Which is is the answer to your question, I would I would posit. Uh, why are they doing it? Well, because this is out of the, the cult playbook, um, you know, make people afraid of, of the outside world. Because it right. keeps them, it keeps them in. So I think that's that's very much feels like uh, a very familiar tale. Celine, mm-hmm. uh, um, what, what what are your thoughts? Oh, well, I have um, I do have a question I've been thinking about, but I was just thinking it, it would be come better after you've talked about the four, these four sort of sections. So I was, um, well, we've but, kind of we've kind of done that now. So um, go go for it. I was just thinking about the fact that like so there's obviously all this. Um, sort of tangle of stuff going on um in terms of you know the the culture if you want to call it that in in scare quotes um of of this group and their way of of depicting the um, religion and the bible and stuff how do you um untangle all of that and come to faith in a way that you can remove from that afterwards um so uh, we've mentioned before we started recording that you have faith. So what's that sort of process like? So I think most people we talk to come out and it's all gone. Um, so a process of coming out and having some faith still. Right. Well, and, and yeah, look, it, it's a big, big topic. I mean, every <laughs> every individual is going to have a different journey that they go through with that. Um yeah, look, for, for me, it's sort of a case of not wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater in the sense that going back and dissecting the beliefs I was raised in, I didn't want to reject beliefs for emotional reasons as a reactionary process because I think, um, and I'm not, I'm certainly not, uh, you know, condemning people that do that. I think that's an incredibly natural response to have. But I wanted to have good intellectual reasons for believing what I believe and for rejecting, you know, certain beliefs that I was raised in as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of that, I think, is just to do with my personality. Um, You know, I I like to try and be as objective as I can about things. But in terms of personal experience um, for individuals, I think a lot of it also depends on the, the people they're surrounded with after they leave a group like that. And this this is actually something I, I think we need to be better at as as societies in providing resources and community for people. I, I get the impression that oftentimes the, the first community that people find acceptance in after leaving a group will, will often leave an indelible mark on in terms of their belief system as, as well. Um, so I, I think a lot of it, you know, if you have somebody that coming out of a group like that, if they find, you know, a church or a religious organization that is, is much more accepting and, you know, is, is patient with them and, you know, helps them untangle some of the, the, the more sinister beliefs they've been raised in. Um, I think that can definitely go a long way to providing some healing as well. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's, there's people that, you know, to get away from the trauma that they've experienced, you know, the, the religious trauma specifically, um, end up rejecting 
religious or organized religion completely and you know again you can you can certainly see how they get to that point yeah i think it's it's a really interesting question i mean obviously we uh as we we did have a uh, we addressed or discussed that briefly before we we started and we were saying that um uh Celine and i are very clear that we we are atheists um we we talk about that subject quite a lot um i feel that um my journey was helped by the fact that i i felt i did what you described really was uh, rather than reject it out of hands i wanted to know for myself what was the truth and so i did a lot of um reading a lot of looking at what i thought you know made sense um what the evidence was and and so that's that's where i've got to whereas you've used the same methodology um you've got to a different place and and we were saying how important it is that we talk to each other i think and that's something that perhaps we're not so good at right yeah no i i completely agree i think they're really valuable conversations to have in fact um one one little quirk for me uh, something that i tend to do a lot in terms of when i'm listening to things in the car it's it's very often uh things centered around debates you know often ideological philosophical or, or even religious debates and i very much enjoy engaging with the side that i don't agree with just just so i can see kind of you know at least that i'm not straw manning the 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 opposition if you will and and try and get an understanding where are these people coming from how have they arrived at the conclusions that they have and you know how would i respond to somebody you know who who i'm talking to in that situation so um yeah unfortunately my uh enjoying debating things uh, is also a source of frustration to some of my family and friends i'm sure <laughs> yeah yeah i can understand that um yeah it, it it it's very it's very important though i think to um to to continue that that dialogue um, and it's something that we've talked about on, on our podcast, uh, making sure that we, we do have these different voices because actually our main, um, the thrust of the, the podcast is, is about how to make sense of the world once you leave. Mm-hmm. And that is a sense making is an individual process. It's a psychological process of looking around and interpreting, constructing the world in a way that that you can cope with and that you that makes sense that's not to say that i deny there is such a thing as reality or truth and so on i think there is but the process that we go through to to do that is a is a very personal one and for me if that process involves um maintaining religious beliefs staying a christian or becoming a buddhist or or whatever then um, i think that there can be some absolute value in that um I, I, I will still engage, though, in the sorts of debates that you've discussed because I, I still think, A, it's good fun, so long as it's done in a, in, a, in a respectful way. But B, it's also, you know, there is something of importance here, you know, that there is a, there is a truth. You know, either we, we were created 6,000 years ago, Adam and Eve in a garden, or we weren't, you know, and I think that's a good... Uh, that that's an important question to that we should be able to debate and um, you know I think it's right to, to have those discussions but I still think it's important for people to have that that the ability to have whatever road helps them out of this group I guess what worries me a bit is the the risk when you leave something like that of getting uh, caught up in something else that 
that is very totalitarian. And I think you allude to that in your piece as well, the fact that you can re- reconstruct what you know somewhere else or you can get get involved in something else that in many respects is quite similar. Right, and, and that can that can either be a group. I think in some cases people even replicate it in their personal relationships, you know, whether it's a romantic yeah. partner that's that's controlling or something like that. And, and, and it, yeah, it's really heartbreaking when you see that happening to people as well because, you you know, sometimes as an outsider you, you can be a little bit more objective and you sort of realise that we're creating mm. certain things. And, um, yeah, no, there's, there's certainly a, a danger with that. But... Um, I guess part of the uh, part of the reason I think, in terms of the dis- discussion with something like Kwasi Zabanda, why it's important to share that um, there are both believers and and uh, non-believers who are equally condemning Kwasi Zabanda, is that if if you have believers that are, are raising some of the same criticisms, it doesn't allow the, the leadership of the mission to say these are just apostates who have rejected God. That's why they hate us. Um, yeah. if, if you can say, look, here's somebody with a PhD in theology who's pastoring a church who is leveling the, the same allegations, the same criticisms at, at Kwasi Zabantu, they're more likely to take it seriously just because of, of the worldview that they're um, mm-hmm. living in at the time. You know, um, So that, that's why, again, I think it's actually really useful to have a number of different perspectives and um, different experiences of, of people you know, contributing to the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, yeah. I've really enjoyed that conversation. <laughs> me as well. It's been really great. Yeah, no, thank so, you for having me on. So interesting. Yeah, it really is. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to putting this out. We're, I'm not quite sure how, how we do it, but I think we'll probably um, have Erica's um, uh, podcast out first, episode out first, um, which is a very personal experience. And then I think this really helps to to help understand where this organization is coming from and um, you know mm-hmm. the reasons it's doing these sorts of mm-hmm. things i think it's absolutely fascinating um up until about a month ago i i didn't i have to confess i didn't really know about um quasi zabantu at all i hadn't really heard of it so um yeah my, for my, alerting me to it <laughs> yeah no my impression is is that other than the people that were involved in some way outside of south africa they're probably not likely to have heard of it i mean mm-hmm. It, because of some of the commercial enterprises that they have in South Africa, uh, so the Aquele water brand, for example, most South Africans know what that is, so they can sort of connect it and say, oh, they own Aquele, okay, you know, kind of yeah. gives them a reference yeah. point. But, yeah, no, I, I don't generally expect people to know about it, you know, that live outside of South Africa. So. Sure. Well, thank you for illuminating us on that. Uh, Daniel, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely to chat with you guys. Great, thank you. What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production.